Uh, well, this morning we're going to be in the book of Hebrews, and we're going to be considering what it means and what it is to draw near to God. I think the invitation that the Lord has for us this morning is to come out of hiding and draw near to the throne. And so if you'd stand with me this morning, we'll be in Hebrews chapter 4. I'll give you a second to get there. I guess I should have done that first. But we'll be in Hebrews chapter 4. It's in your New Testament towards the end, right after the book of Philemon. You'll find it. Hebrews chapter 4, we'll be starting at verse 8, and we'll go to the end of the chapter. It says this, For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest, so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account." Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. This is God's word. Amen and amen. You can take a seat. Man, I got to say, uh, I chose to preach out of the book of Hebrews. I was captivate, captivated by this idea of drawing near to God. I've preached out of Hebrews a couple times over the years, but I was struck by the density uh, and the difficulty of Hebrews as a book to preach out of. For those who have some experience preaching, Hebrews is tough. The argumentation of it builds on, on top of itself. There's so many things going on. Even in this passage, we've got ideas of rest. Uh, we've got one of the most important verses in Scripture about Scripture, telling us the, the Word is living and active. Uh, this, in the same passage, it tells us that Jesus is a high priest, uh, which is a dense theological concept. There's a lot going on in this passage, but Lord willing, he'll help us to journey through it so we can see our invitation to draw near to the throne of grace. Um, a little bit about the book of Hebrews, just to give you a sense. Uh, this was a letter written. We don't actually know who wrote the book of Hebrews. There's a lot of uh, ideas, but we don't actually know who wrote it. Uh, but the letter was written to Jews who, who had converted to Christianity and were now tempted to return back to Judaism. So it's a book, a letter written to encourage the, the, the Christians, the Jewish Christians, to press on and to continue on in their faith. Uh, a lot of ways the author tries to do this, a lot of ways he tries to encourage them, is by, by showing them that Jesus is greater than the prophets, he's greater than the angel, he's greater than the heroes of the Jewish faith. And he uses this to, to encourage them to press on. Uh, chapter 3, right before our passage, it concludes by showing us that the Israelites had failed in their disobedience to enter the rest available 
in the promised land. They had failed to find rest. And so chapter 4 begins with a call to obedience and an invitation to enter a rest that is still available. And so we'll look at verses 8 and 9 as we begin. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever, for whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Here the author is telling us that the, the Old Testament rest that was promised to the people of God in the promised land, it was good. There was a good rest that God made available to them. But now he's telling us that there's an even better rest that's available to the people of God. That's a theme throughout the letter of Hebrews where the author will show us something that's good to then show us something that's even better. And so he's showing us that there's an invitation to a better rest, a more true and full rest. An interesting thing that's going on in this passage is that word Joshua comes from the word Yeshua, which is actually the same word for Jesus. And so what, the, Hebrew, what the, the author of Hebrews is doing here, he's showing us that there was a Yeshua who couldn't fully bring his people into rest. And now there's a new Yeshua, Jesus, who is able to bring his people into rest. But this would sound strange to a Jewish audience. They'd say, what do you mean God's people didn't have rest? They lived peacefully in the promised land for a long time. But the author is telling us that there's a rest that is still available for God's people. And it's one that includes, as, as is mentioned in our passage, it's one that includes resting from our works, resting from our striving. Christian salvation is resting from works and resting securely on what Yeshua, Jesus, has done. But it's not enough to simply know that that rest is available I can talk about my post-church football nap all day long, but it doesn't become real until my head hits the couch and I dive into my slumber. And so as we continue on thinking about this rest, verses 11 through 13 tell us, let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. That's talking about the, the Israelites in the desert, in the wilderness. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. That passage starts by saying, let us strive to enter that rest. The striving that it's talking about isn't a striving of trying to earn something, but it's a striving of seeking to embrace and make our own the rest that God has made available to us. But the argument here is interesting. Why should we enter that rest? Well, the answer is because God is in the business of laying the realities of our hearts bare before us. But how does he do it? Through his word. We hear a lot of interesting descriptions about what the Bible is, about what Scripture is. And a few years ago, there was this big movement uh, where people talked a lot about the fact that the Bible was a love letter from God to us. 
which is a really sweet idea, and I don't want don't to poke fun at it or downplay it. It's a beautiful thing. But the interesting thing that's happening here is that the Bible isn't described as a love letter. The Bible here is described as a cleaver that's going to chop us up and show us our need for God. Very warm and fuzzy. Scripture is living and active, and it pierces straight to our hearts with the purpose of showing us that we too need to enter the rest that is available to us. It pierces to our very hearts. A professor of mine at Biola often says that the job of one who teaches the Bible is to let it sing and let it sting. Today, people often think that the job of a pastor is to make us feel good. I think this is especially true of my generation. I think uh, oftentimes if we leave a sermon and we don't feel encouraged or inspired or we don't feel really good, then we think that somehow the pastor has failed to do his job. And don't get me wrong, I don't think the the job of a pastor is to make us feel bad. I don't think the job of a pastor is to condemn us. But the reality is, The Bible doesn't always make us feel good. Like I said here, it's described like a cleaver that's going to chop us up and show us our need for God. And so sometimes when when we encounter God's word, it's not always going to feel good. But what I want us to hear this morning is that the Bible is not always supposed to make you feel good. The Bible is supposed to make you run to Jesus and look to him for rest. Again, the Bible is not always supposed to make you feel good, but the Bible is supposed to make you run to Jesus and look to him for rest. And so in in our next couple verses, the author is going to make a really interesting transition where he's going to move from talking about Jesus as a wilderness guide, taking us into our Sabbath rest. That was the passage before. And now starting at verse 14, he's going to talk about Jesus as a high priest who's bringing us into the holy places of God, to the very throne room of God. And before I read this passage, just a little bit on on high priests. I'm no scholar, uh, so I won't go too in-depth on this, but a high priest, Craig would be mad at me for saying I'm no, no scholar. He'd be like, you do have a Bible degree. I heard that voice in my head as I said that. But, uh, but this language of a high priest, a high priest is somebody uh, in Israel who, who offers sacrifices and purifications so that the people of God can dwell with God. The book of, of Leviticus is all about the, the rules and the purification rites of the people of Israel so that God can remain in their midst. That's the role of a high priest, is to provide purifications and sacrifices on behalf of the people. And so reading here verses 14 through 16, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. 
In those first few words, the high priest who passed through the heavens, the writer is talking about Jesus' ascension. So Jesus died, he rose again, and after his resurrection, he appeared to over 500 people. He spent about 40 days on earth, and after that, he ascended up into heaven. He went straight to the right hand of God, where the author of Hebrews would tell us that after providing purification for sins, Jesus sat down at the right hand of God. That's Hebrews 1. And so his passing through the heavens is talking about Jesus ascending to the right hand of the Father. But Jesus is a certain kind of high priest. Uh, In a lot of ways, he's unlike the priests of Israel. The author of Hebrews will spend a pretty good amount of the rest of this letter telling us that Jesus is actually very different from the high priests or from the priests of Israel. One of the ways he's different is that the priests of Israel, day after day, would offer sacrifices for sins. But Jesus provided one sacrifice, one time, once for all. Another way he's different is that the priests of Israel, uh, they had to provide sacrifices not only for the people, but also for their own sin. But Jesus is a high priest who came and lived and was without sin, so he could offer sacrifices for his people, but he himself needed no sacrifice for his own sin. And the next verses there that we read, it tells us that our high priest is able to sympathize with our weaknesses. He's been tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. I think oftentimes when we hear these words or we hear things about Jesus uh, never sinning or being holy or being perfect, we kind of think, oh, well, of course he did that. He was Jesus. He couldn't have sinned. He was God which is true, but we forget that Jesus took on the full humanity. He took on full humanity. He was fully God, fully man, and yet without sin. And so this is a way that that Jesus, he's not just a high priest who's in some ivory tower, disconnected from the pains and struggles and challenges of his people. He's a high priest who can sympathize with us. He's a high priest who's experienced all the temptations, all the struggles that we have. When Jesus was on earth, he was in in the wilderness, tempted by Satan for 40 days. And during that time, Jesus was tempted with a lot of the same things that we're tempted by. Satan tried uh, to get him, Satan tempted him with feelings of significance, showing him, look, Jesus, You could get all of these people to bow down to you. He tempted him uh, with the feeling of being successful, with the feeling uh, of being accomplished, with the feeling of being satisfied, the feeling of being comfortable, all the same things that we're tempted by. Jesus, too, came to earth and experienced as well. Satan tempted him to try to accomplish his mission without union with the Father. And I think as as evangelicals, we're pretty good at remembering and understanding that God is holy. We read the Old Testament and we see, okay, God is holy, so he can't be with sin. Those two things, if they come together, uh, it, it never ends well, and it usually involves some sort of fire or explosion or something like that. Sin and holiness don't mix. But the crazy thing about Jesus is in Jesus, we see that God has actually moved towards sin, 
God has actually come down in the form of man and moved towards us in our sin. He's a God who moves towards the broken and the weak. And because of what he has done, we see in the last verse there, now we too can enter into the very throne room of God. For me, when I think about the throne room, Isaiah chapter 6 comes to my mind. It came to my mind as I was preparing this week. Isaiah chapter 6, you don't need to turn there, but essentially uh, it's right as Isaiah, a prophet of the Old Testament, is commissioned to begin his ministry. And right before he's commissioned, he has this vision where he finds himself in the holy place. He finds himself in the throne room of God. And when he finds himself there, he cowers in fear and says, I'm a man of unclean lips. He prepares to be swallowed up and killed by the holiness of God. He's literally having a nightmare, a daydream nightmare. I don't know what you would call that. Uh, But he's having a nightmare about appearing before God and being consumed by him. That's the throne room of God. Sometimes we get comfortable with the idea of, wow, we can draw near to the throne, and that's beautiful. But for Isaiah, for the prophets of old, the throne room of God was a place where we could not be, a place where if we found ourselves there, we would be consumed by the holiness of God. But Jesus now is telling us that we can come into the throne room of God a place once too holy and dangerous for us to be. Now we are made clean and we can come into the throne room of God. We are invited to draw near. A theologian named George, I think his first name is George. I forgot to write down his first name. His last name is Guthrie. Uh, He said, Jesus has been with us in our humanness and now invites us to be with him at the throne of grace. Jesus has been with us in our humanness, and now invites us to be with him at the throne of grace. Therefore, we may approach with unabashed boldness. But oftentimes, I think we fear drawing near. I think sometimes we feel like if we come to God, there's a lecture or a guilt trip waiting for us on the other side. I don't know if you've ever found yourself in this place where it's scary to come to God because I don't know what he's going to say. When I was thinking about this, a story came to mind. When I was in high school, I played baseball. Uh, My sophomore year of high school, I was what's called a pinch runner, which essentially means I wasn't very good, but I was very fast. So uh, my only way to get to play was to pinch run, which meant like if 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 a man who was perhaps a little bit more large in stature, got on base, it was my job to come in and run for him. And there was a a game where we were playing against our rivals, Lee High School up in the Bay Area. I went to Los Gatos High School, go Wildcats. Uh, We were playing against our rivals. I came in to pinch run, got all the way around a third base, don't remember how, but maybe I, let's just say I stole second, I stole third. I'm so fast. I was on third base. Uh, and there was a pass ball, I mean, the pitcher threw the ball, it got past the catcher, and I see my opportunity. I'm like, I'm doing it, I'm running home, let's go. And I, I run as fast as I can, and about halfway to home plate, I see that the ball had bounced off the bricks behind home plate and had come right back to the catcher. And so I slide in, I'm out by five feet, it doesn't look great, 
And my coach, understandably so, was not very happy with me for making such a bold move. And I remember after being called out, the game, also this was like the seventh inning, tied 0-0, not, not a great moment for me. But I remember coming back towards the dugout and seeing my coach and being like, oh man, this isn't going to be good. He, I knew he was mad and he was going to let me have it. Uh, he was going to chew me out, as they say, and, and, and make sure that I knew that I had messed up. And last time uh, that I preached, I told a story about how I got caught cheating by my teacher, and he should have been mean to me, but he wasn't. He was nice. This is not that story. My coach, uh, in front of my whole team, in front of all the crowds, friends, girls, high school crushes that were there, everyone, my coach let me have it. Uh, and he told me how badly... I had messed up. And I think a lot of times we're afraid that God will be like this. I think we're afraid that God is a God who just can't wait to make us feel bad for our mistakes. And I think a lot of times we think that God is a God who just can't wait to make sure we know we messed up. But I don't think God is like this at all. John Mark Homer one of my favorite pastors often says, God's default attitude towards you is mercy. God is a God who delights in showing mercy to his people. As we talked about, he's a God who's compassionate and gracious. He's slow to anger, unless, unlike my baseball coach. He's abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And so for the rest of our time this morning, I'd love to just think about what it means to draw near to God and about the things that tend to stand between us and drawing near to God. If I look at my life honestly, there are a lot of times where I feel like I have drawn near to God. There's also a lot of times where I didn't. There's a lot of, a lot of times where I actually went the other way and I ran from God. And there's more times than I'd like to admit where I've been fairly apathetic about coming to God. I think we are often aware of the fact that we can come to God, but we often keep things to ourselves instead. Subconsciously, we think, no, I can't say that to God. I can't bring that to Him. But why is this? For insight, I'd love to look at the story of Adam and Eve. In Genesis chapter 3, you can turn there if you'd like, but I'll read it for us. Genesis chapter 3, starting at verse 6. It says, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden. And I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. This is the story of Adam and Eve's first sin and how they respond to it. Verse 7, where it says, then, he, then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. 
and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Theologians refer to this as the first instance of shame. They see that they're naked and they cover themselves. Verse 8, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. Theologians refer to this as the first experience of guilt. They know that they've gone, they know that they've done wrong, and so they hide. When Adam and Eve feel shame and guilt, their response is to cover themselves and to hide. Instead of running to their father who was walking in the garden in the cool of the day looking for them, instead of running to him, they hide from him. Their man-made solutions are covering and hiding from God. And so the striking reality of the people of God is that we are a people who are called to draw near, but we are so often like Adam and Eve, running and hiding. And the reality is each of us probably experiences guilt or shame in some capacity every day. There are all sorts of things that bring on these feelings. Maybe we're stuck in bad habits that we just can't seem to break. Maybe we are angry with people and deep down we know that we just aren't interested in reconciling. Maybe deep down we feel like we've failed as a friend or a parent or a sibling. When negative feelings like this come on, we so often react like Adam and Eve. We cover and we hide from God. And so I wonder in our passage if the invitation to draw near is also an invitation to come out of hiding and to approach our Father. But we wonder what will happen if we come out of hiding. This can be intimidating and scary. A couple of days ago, <clears throat> I was playing with my, my girlfriend's little brother, Thomas. I'm not very good at knowing how old kids are. I guess I could have asked her, but he's like somewhere around yay high. I don't know. Um, and we were playing. He's obsessed with the movie Godzilla vs. Kong, which is like, if you haven't seen it, you probably don't have to. Um, it's, you, if you heard the name of the movie, you understand what it is. It's essentially Godzilla and King Kong fighting each other, and it's, that's pretty much what it is. It's epic, yeah. Um, but he's obsessed with it, and so we were playing Godzilla vs. Kong, which essentially just means one of us pretends to be Godzilla, the other one pretends to be King Kong, and then we wrestle and we chase each other, and it's a ton of fun. We're having a blast. Uh, and about midway through our game, uh, I notice that in the trail of Thomas running away from me, there's, a, there's an odor that's following him, the odor that tends to follow children of whatever age Thomas is. And, and I smelled it, and I was like, oh man, the diaper is full. But uh, I, continued, I continued to play with Thomas, because he's, he's a cool little buddy, and I love Thomas. He's the best. So we kept playing. And I, and I was thinking about that. You're probably wondering why I'm telling you a story about a child packing a full diaper. Also, as I was thinking about this, I was like, this really reveals how little I know about children that I was like surprised that he pooped because it's like, there's probably a lot of you who are like, yeah, that is, that's how children work. I was like, I didn't know that. So, um, but why do I tell you this? Why do I tell you this? Because we've all got junk. None of our diapers are empty. None of them. God can smell it, and he knows it's there. But God also isn't afraid of it. 
He's not afraid of the shame and guilt that we feel. He wants to free us of it. When, God sees our broke, when we see our brokenness, God sees the cross. This is why later on the writer of Hebrews will remind us of the words of God who says, For I will forgive your inequities, and I will remember your sins no more. In Jesus, our high priest who offers forgiveness for us, God moves toward our sin, and he moves toward our brokenness. And so this question remains, will we draw near? I think one of the things that impedes us from drawing near to God is not fully understanding what's been done for us. Oftentimes we, th- we, we believe that God has forgiven us, but there are lingering things in our mind that don't feel like God has fully forgiven yet. Or we believe that God accepts us, but we think that there's a couple things about us that we need to get together and then he'll really accept us. It's human nature to think, if I get my act together, then God will accept me. But Jesus invites us to draw near now. Again, central to understanding our ability to draw near to God is our need to understand what's been done for us. That was a really complicated way to say that sentence, but we did it. Romans chapter 8, verse 1 says, There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. In Colossians 2, Paul tells us, When you were dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave all your sins, all our sins, having canceled the charge of legal indebtedness which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. I think the implications of our forgiveness and acceptance in Christ are massive. But one of the biggest ones is that since we are fully forgiven and fully accepted, we can bring anything to God. Imagine a friend who you can tell whatever you want, you can say anything you want to say to them, but no matter what you say, you know that they will still love and accept you. That's the kind of friend that God is to us. And as we, so as we draw near to the ending, I'd love to leave us with two things. The first thing is when you feel, when you feel shame or guilt, run to the cross. When you feel shame or guilt, run to the cross. So often when we feel conviction or or we see ourselves and we see uh, kind of our dirty laundry that we don't want to look at, we, we so often look to how can I fix this? Maybe we hear a sermon about anger or about lust or about pride and we think, all right, I gotta fix this. I'm gonna pull myself up by my bootstraps. I'm gonna figure this out. I'm gonna beat it. I can beat pride. I can beat lust. I can beat whatever it is. But I wanna invite you, when you feel guilt or shame, don't run to yourself and your own strength. Run to the cross. Run to what's already been done for you. 
like the second verse of Before the Throne, when Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. Luther Luther said that there is only one place to run when our conscience is pricked, and that is to Christ. And so when you feel the drive to try to fix your own garbage, instead of, tr- instead of doing that, try inviting God into it. Invite him to be there with you in your imperfection. Talk to him about it. Instead of just saying, God, I'm so prideful, I gotta fix this. Say, Lord, I'm so prideful, would you be with me? I need you. Invite God into it. And so that's the first thing. When you feel shame or guilt, run to the cross. And our charge, our second thing in our charge for today is to come out of hiding and draw near to God. We so often believe that we're acceptable to God when we're having a good day. But what if in Christ you are acceptable to God right now? What if you don't have to get your act together before coming to God? The invitation invitation of our passage isn't draw near to God because you are so angelically well-behaved. The invitation is draw near to God because of who our high priest is. Jesus understands our sin. He understands our temptation Again, he is the one who moves towards us in our sin, not away from us. And so our call is to draw near to God because our high priest is empathetic and understands our challenges. All the arrangements have been made. If you're in Christ, the work has already been done. Now the only question that remains for us is will we draw near to him? I came across this dilemma a lot in the last couple of weeks as I knew I needed to prepare for this sermon. Uh, Something that you should know about me is I'm a procrastinator and discipline is like not my strong suit at all at this point in my life. Maybe some of you can relate. And I just kept thinking, man, I don't want to write this sermon. I don't want to work on this. That sounds like a lot of work. That sounds tiring. And finally, I just gave in and I talked to God about it. And I just said, Lord, I don't think I really want to do this. I'm afraid I'm not going to do a good job. It sounds like a lot of work. Can't somebody else do it? Lord, take this cup from me. (laughs) But man, it felt good to say that to God. It felt good to just tell him the truth about what was going on in my heart. To tell him exactly what I was feeling and to not have to sugarcoat it or say it in a pretty Christian way, but just tell, Lord, this is what I'm feeling. I wonder if that's what it looks like to draw near to God. One of my professors at Talbot often says, if you want a boring prayer life, spend it trying to be good instead of trying to be honest. So often we want our prayers to sound pretty, we want to be good little boys and girls who are well-behaved and have nice prayers. And I think oftentimes that's why we we get bored of praying and why we don't feel like doing it, is because prayer becomes a place where we have to be good and not a a place where we can be honest and be ourselves and actually tell God the realities of what's going on. 
And so as we come to a close, worship team, you guys can come on up. And I'd love to just offer us some time with the Lord to consider the truth that he's presented to us today. I wonder for you if there are areas of your life where God is inviting you to come out of hiding and to draw near. I wonder if there's areas of your life that you felt like God doesn't want to hear or areas of your life that feel too dirty or too shameful or just too much of an inconvenience to bring to God. I'd love to remind you of Jesus, the high priest who empathizes with our weaknesses, who knows every piece of us. We are laid bare before him, and yet he still invites us near. Pastor Craig uh, led us through the, uh, the Psalms, maybe about, I don't know when that was, a year ago or something like that. And something that we see in the Psalms is that the psalmist isn't afraid to say anything to God. There's even parts of the Psalms that, that are shocking and, and we don't really like to read. There's things where he talks about uh, wishing that his enemy's children would be smashed upon the rocks. And when I read that, I think, man, if David can say that to God, I think I can talk to him about what's going on for me. If he can be that honest with the Lord, then I think I can too. And so Kirsten's going to play just a little bit for us. And as she does this, I'd love to just give us space to talk with the Lord about anything that might have come to mind today. But before we do that, let me, Kirsten, you can play, but let me read a bit of our passage for you one more time. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So take a minute with the Lord. Just ask him, God, are there areas of my life where you're calling me to come out of hiding and draw near? Let's take a moment with him. Lord, thank you that you aren't like my baseball coach who couldn't wait 
to show me how badly I had messed up. Thank you that you are compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Lord, I just pray that you would help us to draw near to you. Each one of us, God, has things that we'd rather not talk about with you. Probably because they're things that we would rather not talk about in general. But Lord, help us to not be like Adam and Eve, covering and hiding from you. Thank you, Jesus, that you moved towards us in our sin. Thank you that you died for us in our sins and that you're not afraid of our sins now. We pray that you'd help us to come out of hiding and draw near to you, Lord. Thank you for being with us. Holy Spirit, thank you for dwelling deep inside of us. throne room of God to us. In his name, amen.